Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? It's great. When I was a kid, my grandfather and I used to watch reruns of The Lone Ranger. Anybody remember the original Lone Ranger television series? How many of you go back even further and remember the Lone Ranger radio tele uh, show? Yeah, that's dating you a little bit, right? Yeah, before it was a popular television show, it was a really popular radio series, and every week families would gather around the radio, and uh, William Tell Overture would come on, and this announcer voice would, you know, talk about the Lone Ranger, Hi-Ho Silver, all that. And every episode would end with someone lamenting the fact that they didn't get the name of the hero. Who was that masked man, they would always ask. And somebody would reply why that was the Lone Ranger. And the Lone Ranger with his trusty sidekick, Tonto, would ride through the Old West riding injustices. But it's interesting how deceptive a mask can be. I mean, it only covered his eyes, and yet people didn't recognize his true identity. It's kind of like Superman and Clark Kent. You're telling me that he can put on glasses and nobody knows that it's Superman? But I believe it because I walk through the grocery store with a hat on and none of y'all know me. I, I see you in the grocery store or the mall and I wave to you and you look at me like, I don't know who you are, but it's only because I have a hat on. I'm not in context, right? Are masks really that effective in concealing a person's true identity? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely they are, at least sometimes. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15, it reads, He, God, is the image of the invisible God or he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of Christ. So what does this passage have to do with hypocrisy? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. However, I'm banking on the fact that most of you this morning know about hypocrisy. You know how to define it, and you've probably partaken in it. So we know what hypocrisy is, but if we're going to get to the root of the problem, the heart of the issue, then we have to start here. We have to start with God, because I believe if you get God right, you get everything right. And Paul says everything revolves around God. He's the boss. Everything revolves around him. Now, it's not this way in the world, and unfortunately, it's not always this way in the religious world. In the religious world and in the world as a whole, many times we adhere to what is called a man-centered theology. What that means is that man is the focal point. Everything revolves around him. My passions, my wants, my desires, my will be done in all things. And God is just a means to an end. He is there to meet my needs. But other than that, we don't really want him to get too involved. Now, what we adhere to at Oldham Lane is something that is more in step with Scripture. We adhere to a God-centered theology. And a God-centered theology asks the question, what does God want? A man-centered theology asks the question, what do I want? 
A God-centered theology puts God at the center and everything revolves around him. He calls the shots. He's the boss. And our only responsibility is to bow before him. We acquiesce to his will, his way of doing things. In a God-centered theology, we ask the question, what does God want? And then we seek to meet whatever it is that he desires of us. That is the basis for everything that we do here at Oldham Lane, and hopefully it's the basis for everything that you do in your daily life. You know, I hate to admit this, but you could probably admit this as well. There have been times, at least growing up and in my faith journey, that I questioned God's Word somewhat. I I would look at God's Word and I would think, I don't know that I agree with that. You know, I I would look at the Scriptures and I would say, I I don't know that I want to buy into that. As I've grown, though, I've realized something, that if I disagree with God's Word, I have to assume that I'm wrong, because I am. God is always right, because if I adhere to a God-centered theology, which is in step with Scripture and which is the best way then I have to admit that his way is always right, and my way, if it's not according to his way, is always wrong. You know, I think all of us could admit that if we were God, we might do some things a little differently. We might uh, maybe punish people more readily instead of storing it all up till the end. Maybe we wouldn't be so judgmental, or maybe we'd say, "Yeah, yeah, I'd be a little more tolerant. Maybe I'd be a little more inclusive and less exclusive. But here's the deal. You don't have a universe. You know what I'm talking about? God created the universe. And by the very fact that he created everything means that he gets to run everything. You don't have a universe. And no offense, but I I don't want you running things. I don't want me running things. God created the universe, and it would be only right that the one who created it would sustain it. I mean, if he created it, he knows how it's supposed to run If he is the almighty, supreme, sustainer, creator of the universe, then obviously we want him in charge, right? And so he's God, I'm not. That is an irrefutable fact. And it means that my role is to bow to him. The creature is in submission to the one who created him. That's how this whole whole thing works. And that's how humility works. That's where humility starts, that we acquiesce to God. We say that he is in charge. I am not, I bow to him. Do you really want to know what God's word says? And do you really want to follow God's word? Or is there this voice inside of you that says, I know what his word says, but. I know what God has said, but. If I disagree with God, I must assume that I am wrong, because I am. I am in no position to assume otherwise because what credibility do I have? And you say, well, Chris, can you prove all this? Yeah, I can. Look around you. Look at the world. I mean, you see disarray. You see destruction. You see all sorts of of ruin. I mean, politics, man, certainly messed that up. I mean, scroll through social media, you see the destruction and and, and all the disloyalty and, and, and all the different disses in the world. You see all of it. Because when man puts himself on the throne, he ultimately ruins everything. God must be first place. You know, if I were to make a person, if I were to make him out of clay, mold him and shape him, and then give him life, and then he said, I need this, I want this, I demand this, you know what I would do? I would probably pinch his little head off. And you probably would too. Because I made him. 
Like, what rights does he have? The only reason he exists is because of me. And so think about that in terms of God. He created you, therefore, this whole, I deserve this, I want this, I need this, I demand this. You don't have any rights. You're the created, not the creator. You don't have a universe. God created you. He's the one that knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. He's the one that made you to be a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You weren't even here a few years ago. And now you're going to talk about your rights and your demands? So after laying out a God-centered theology, Paul then turns his attention to man. And notice what he says. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So Paul starts with a God-centered theology. He turns his attention to man and our role in this theology. And then look at verses 13 and 14. If you go back up, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. So the center of the universe is the creator of the universe, and we revolve around him. Everything revolves around him, not the other way around. So Paul establishes that the supreme authority belongs to God. It rests in him, and then he puts man in his place by reminding us of who we were versus who we are now. If, if it weren't for God, there would be no Chris McCurley. And if it weren't for Jesus Christ, there would be no redeemed Chris McCurley. So, I am who I am because of who God is. A God-centered theology recognizes that and bows to that every single day. You know, there's a hymn in our songbook, and you've heard me talk about it before. I'm not all that fond of it. It's called, There's an All-Seeing Eye Watching You. I don't, I don't really like that song because uh, I believe it presents God in, in a light that's not exactly uh, accurate scripturally. And uh, if you like it, I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend you, but I'm not a big fan of the song. I just have this vision of a big eyeball in the sky watching over us, waiting for us to mess up so I can shoot a laser or a lightning bolt from it and turn us into a french fry. I just, I don't, I don't like the song that much. However, there's something about that song that is very, very accurate and very true. There is an all-seeing eye watching you. God is always watching you. And that shouldn't scare you. In fact, it should give you comfort. And you say, Chris, how, what in the world do you mean? Look with me at what the Hebrew writer states. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are naked. They're laid bare. They're exposed before God. The Greek term for naked or open is gumnos. And it means exactly what you would think it means. It means unclad, bare, naked, exposed. That's how... We appear before God. We are open before Him. We may be able to wear outer coverings or a mask to hide our true identity, but in the presence of God, all those things are, are gone. He sees past the exterior and into our hearts. Now, the Hebrew writer also uses laid bare or laid open before God, and the Greek term here is rather complicated. Not only complicated to understand, but complicated to say. Tetrakalismena is the word. And it derives from the Greek word trekalizo, which means to seize and twist the neck. It refers to a bending or twisting of the neck 
It is a uh, sort of a, a word picture for a wrestler who seizes his opponent by the neck and renders him helpless. It's also a depiction of a sacrifice. Really, the word translates to someone with their head thrown back and their neck exposed to a knife or a dagger. You think about the sacrifices. Head thrown back, neck exposed, so they slit the neck. That's the picture that is given here. In other words, you are completely vulnerable before God. You are in a completely vulnerable position before God. Hopeless, helpless, head thrown back, neck exposed. No other recourse but to let God have his way with you. Our guard is dropped, our defenses are down. We are in a non-negotiable negotiable position before a holy God. Now there's another word that applies here, and you can find it in Acts chapter 1, verse 24. Now, the context of Acts chapter 1, verse 24, is the choosing of a replacement for Judas, the apostle who betrayed Jesus. And so it comes down to two men, Barsabbas or Justice, and Matthias. The lot falls to Matthias. So, you know, the apostles pray, they cast lots, it falls to Matthias. And listen to what it says, verse 24 and 25. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all people, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. I want you to to notice that phrase, who know the hearts of all people. Now, the, the word here is cardionostes. And cardia means heart, right? And nostes means to know. God is the heart knower. He is the knower of hearts, which means that not only are you completely exposed before God with your head thrown back and your throat open to him to where he can have his way with you, not only that, but you're also completely exposed in that he knows your heart. He knows every secret sin, every deep down darkest skeleton in your closet. He knows every crevice, every nook, every cranny of your heart and everything that resides there. And you say, well, how does that make me feel better? Well, because he still wants you. How many people know you that well? That they know every single thing about you, every deep, dark secret. How many people know that about you? I would say very few, if any. Maybe not even your spouse knows you that well. You don't even want to know yourself that well. God knows you that well. And yet, he still wants you. He wants you in heaven. He wants to have a relationship with you. You see, you have nothing to fear when you have nothing to hide. So what in the world does all of this have to do with hypocrisy? Well, everything. Everything. Have you seen the Mission Impossible movies? Where you have this guy that you think is somebody and then they peel their face away and the, the, the mask was so good that you didn't even know that it was somebody else, or, or the Scooby-Doo movies that at the very end, or at the, the TV show Scooby-Doo, at the very end, the gang gathers around the perpetrator and they pull off his mask, revealing his true identity. That's where we need to get to, where we take off the mask because God sees through it anyway. He knows you better than anyone. Why are you trying to hide anything? He already knows it, right? 
A God-centered theology helps us to remove the mask. Knowing who God is and knowing who we are before God is the key to bridging the gap. Because hypocrisy is the gap between what we show and who we are. It's the gap between what we say and how we live. It's the gap between our public persona and our private character. Here's what it's not. It's not the disparity between what we do and what we wish we did. That's called being a human. And the people who point their finger at church people and say, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Many times their assessment is we're trying to do the right thing, but we don't. That's not hypocrisy. That's sin. That's called being a human. And we all fall prey to that, right? But hypocrisy is the gap between what we know we should do and what we actually do, between who we are and what we show. And Jesus has a zero-tolerance policy for hypocrisy. He cannot stomach the show. Listen to what he says to the hypocrites of his day. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, woe to those of you who watch stuff you shouldn't watch on Netflix. He doesn't say, woe to you who cuss like a sailor. He doesn't say, woe to you who treat your wife poorly. No, he says, woe to you who act like you don't do those things. Because he's not focused on external right now. He's not focused on behavior, the things that you do. He's focused on the fact that you try to hide them. And you try to be something that you're not. He goes to the heart of the issue, to the core of the issue, because you have to do that. You have to get to the core of the problem and let Jesus fill you if you ever want to overcome hypocrisy or really any other sin. It's kind of like if, if I have jaundice, my skin is yellow, I can go home and I can take a bath in bleach. Or I can wear a long sleeve shirt, a turtleneck, I can wear long pants, I can do everything possible to cover up the yellow skin. However, I didn't address the real problem. I can do a lot of things to make it look like my skin isn't yellow. I can put up makeup or whatever it is, but at the end of the day, I haven't addressed the real problem. I have to go to a doctor who's probably going to look at my liver because that's where the whole thing starts. You have to get to the core of the problem if you're going to fix the problem, and that's what Jesus does. The Pharisees were focused on an outside-in approach to religion and theology. It's about crossing every T and dotting every I, except that it's not. Because you don't solve a problem like hypocrisy with outward behavior. You solve it with Jesus. You solve it with an inside-out approach. Change the heart, and the behavior will follow. Notice what James writes, James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about can accomplish much. Do what? Confess my sins to the people in this auditorium? Why, why would I ever do that? Why would anybody ever do that? I mean, if I confess my sins to you, you're likely going to go and tell your friends about it, and they're going to judge me. If I confess my sins to you, 
you're going to think less of me. It's better that you just think better of me and I just wear this mask and keep on pretending than for you to know the true uh, identity of who I am and the things that I've done. Why would I confess my sins to you? You're just going to gossip about me behind my back. And in some churches, that might be true. Not here. But I can see how we might look at James's words here and think you're joking, right? But what if? What if the church were filled with cellophane Christians? What if the church was full of family that was transparent? To where we didn't have to concern ourselves with what others would think of us, so we reveal what's going on with us. Our struggles, our hurts, how disappointed we are in ourselves. What if we could do that freely and openly? What if we could do that without fear of the repercussions of that? What if we were all cellophane, transparent Christians? Now, you would have to exercise some restraint, right? You don't have to, you don't have to tell everything. You know, this is not an excuse to be a dump truck. You don't unload everything. But what if? What if we could bring our concerns, maybe our dark moments, and talk to each other about that? and find support. You know, we, we tend to think that, that church is for the dressed up when it's really for the messed up, isn't it? I mean, if I can't come here and find healing, then that's a problem. If I can't come here and find a family that loves me and builds me up without talking about me behind my back, then that's a problem, right? That's absolutely contrary to what Jesus would have us to be. You've heard me say it before. What's the number one rule about being a Christian? Don't be a jerk. Number one rule. If we're a family, family takes care of each other. Family looks out for one another. Family doesn't have to wear masks because we understand we're completely bare before God. And we also understand that if we're trying to be like Jesus and we adhere to a God-centered theology, that we can, we can be more open with one another. We can confess to one another. This can be a place of transparency, a place where people know us as we truly are and yet love us anyway. I mean, isn't that what God would have us to be? Isn't that being like Jesus? You know, it's interesting that over 20 plus years as a minister, I've done a lot of funerals. And I've worked with a lot of funeral homes in Texas and Missouri and Arkansas. And I've never done a full-on professional study but I can just tell you in my interactions, in just my personal case study, it would amaze you how many funeral directors, funeral home operators, funeral home workers that I've come in contact with that are agnostic, that are atheists, or who have some foundational level of belief but don't really go to church. It would probably surprise you how many I don't know what the percentage is, but it's, it's a pretty high number of folks just in my dealings, and there's been a lot, who really don't go to church or may not even believe in God at all. And you think, well, how could that be? I mean, you work at a funeral home. You deal with death every day. You provide hope for people. How could that be? And you know what? Across the board, the number one thing they tell me is the reason? The hypocrisy of preachers. I've decided to, to dig deeper a little bit with my friends that work in the funeral home. So when I ride with them to the cemetery or something, I'll dig a little bit and, you know, and just ask them. And they said, Chris, you, you wouldn't believe how many churches in town I wouldn't step foot in because of the way the preacher treats us during a funeral 
or the organization of a funeral. You wouldn't believe how many of them are not who they appear to be. Maybe their assessment is wrong. Maybe they're too critical. I can tell you these are good folks that I'm talking with. But it's alarming how many of them have chosen not to go to church or who have chosen not to even believe because of the hypocrisy of people that they know associated with the church. I told one of them the other day, I said, it's, it's really good working with you guys. I always enjoy seeing you. And they said, the feeling's mutual. And I said, I bet you say that to all the preachers. And he said, Chris, there are so many churches in this town I wouldn't even step foot in because of the preacher and the dealings we've had with him. And you know what that reiterates to me? Just be Jesus. I mean, that's it, really. That's the goal, right? Just be Jesus. Be consistent across the board. Don't be a jerk. Be Jesus. Show Jesus to others. And when you adhere to a God-centered theology, you get God right, you get everything else right, and it becomes a lot easier to avoid things like hypocrisy. Listen to me, folks. The world has their hypocrisy radar out. And they are scanning all the time. And maybe that's not fair. And maybe their assessment isn't fair. But let's not give them evidence to confirm what they already are looking for. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity. We love you. We thank you for this family. And we thank you for the love that this family shows one another. We thank you that we are a family that seeks to build one another up and not tear one another down. May we always be that family. May we strive to love bigger, to value your will and your word, to adhere to a God-centered theology. We love you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Can we help you this morning? Do you need the prayers of this church family? Do you, do you need to take that next step in faith? You ready to put on Christ in baptism? Study the Bible with someone? We want to help you this morning. This is a family that loves you and wants what is best for you. So if we can help you in some way, Jim's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?